listening from the Atlantic. I'm hoping you can hear me. Um, sorry I've not done many updates. Um, I've just been, the first couple of days were absolutely horrendous. I don't know how much you guys know about that. And then the past few days I've just been trying to make up some distance. I've been trying to keep up with the rest of the fleet. Um, and so I've just been rowing and rowing and rowing. Um, it's been okay. I've started to eat some more. Um, that is Jasmine Harrison greeting her friends and family and followers in a video posted to Facebook on Thursday morning, December 17th, 2020. When she says, good morning from the Atlantic, that's not hyperbole. When Jasmine recorded her message, she was about 200 miles off the northwest coast of Africa, about 200 miles into a journey that will take her across the Atlantic Ocean, from the Canary Islands to the Caribbean. Her post documented the start of her sixth day aboard the Argo, a seaworthy vessel that shares a name with the ship of Greek legend that carried Jason on his quest to reclaim the Golden Fleece. Jason's Argo was a sailboat, perhaps the first of its kind ever to venture out into the open ocean. Jasmine's Argo is a 21-foot ocean rowboat. Yeah, a rowboat. Hence the rowing and rowing and rowing she mentioned. For perspective, 21 feet is about three-quarters the length of a standard London double-decker bus. But the width of the Argo is maybe a meter and a half, probably about Jasmine's wingspan. Another significant difference? Jason shared his adventure with a boatload of Argonauts. Jasmine is alone on her skinny, short bus in the ocean, rowing and rowing and rowing, solo, as part of the 2020 Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge covering roughly 3,000 miles from San Sebastian in La Gomera to English Harbor in Antigua, the race, appropriately, is regarded as the world's toughest row. And 21-year-old Jasmine Harrison is the youngest woman ever to attempt this crossing alone. Welcome back to the Out of Left Field podcast. As you're listening to this, Jasmine Harrison will have been at sea for one month. Think about that for a moment. Think about everything you've done and experienced in the last month. When Jasmine last stood on terra firma, you still had half an advent calendar's worth of chocolate left to eat. The first American arm had yet to be injected with the COVID-19 vaccine, and people were still looking forward to the new Wonder Woman movie. A lot happens in a month, especially this past month. Now, imagine having spent that month alone in a rowboat, as Jasmine has. She will have rowed more than 900 nautical miles by the time you're hearing this, which is mind-boggling, until you realize that she still has 1,900-something miles to go before landfall, which may not happen for another six weeks. What would possess a young woman to subject herself to the solitude, the whims of the open ocean, the rigors of the 1.5 million oar strokes required to attempt something that fewer people have achieved than have summited Mount Everest? Because she knows that if she can do this, she can do anything. Now, the thing that keeps me going are my two favorites. Chocolate bread, peanut butter. You cannot go wrong with these. Now, if you do anything today, it's going to be this. Because I'm not doing anything else, really. I've tried to row. And that's not working out. Let's get some peanut butter and get some chocolate spread. Here you go. And it is honestly the best thing you've ever tasted in your life. 
When Jasmine Harrison checked in on Facebook this past Friday, she was going nowhere, which is better than the alternative. At her location, which was about 23 degrees west of the prime meridian and the 22nd parallel north, just south of the Tropic of Cancer, she was combating headwinds so persistent that they threatened to blow her and her boat backwards. There are many things you want to avoid during a 3,000-mile row, and near the top of that list would be having to re-row miles that you've already put behind you. To keep from losing ground, nautically speaking, Jasmine and the Argo were forced to deploy their para-anchor, which essentially is a parachute used in place of a traditional anchor, since space aboard an ocean rowboat is at a premium, and there's no place for hundreds of feet of anchor line. There's not even room for Jasmine's own two feet in her sleeping cabin back in the stern of the Argo. It's less than half the size of a normal red telephone box, um, but it is quite roomy for what you would maybe think. It's quite tall, and so I can sit upright in it, at least. Um, when I lay down, my legs have to go underneath the um, sort of area on the deck where I would be sat. We'll give you a proper tour of the Argo a little later, but for now, focus on Jasmine, a 21-year-old part-time swim instructor, part-time bartender turned full-time adventurer from North Yorkshire, a county on the North Sea coast in Northeast England, closer to the border of Scotland than to London. Picture her sitting upright on her bed in her cabin, delighting in spoonfuls of a sort of Reese's spread. When you watch that video, you can see the joy on her face but you can't see the skin on her fingers and the palms of her hands that have been gnawed raw by oar handles and seawater. You can't feel the pervading wetness of, well, everything, or smell the salt of the sea. In the background, you can hear the sloshing, reminding you that she is on the water, always out there on the water. But what you can't hear, not for more than the flash of a moment, is even a trace of frustration in her voice which would be entirely appropriate. She had at that point spent much of the first week of 2021 fighting not to lose whatever progress she'd made towards some far-off finish line. And this isn't the first time she'd been forced to a halt by uncooperative winds. She spent a few days around Christmas on para-anchor, trying to keep the Argo pointed toward the 20 other boats in the fleet, all of whom had been ahead of her pretty much since the race began. The result of a sudden onset of a blurred vision that made for those absolutely horrendous first few days you heard Jasmine mention at the start of this episode. Turns out, impaired vision is one of the possible side effects that could result from the seasickness patch she was wearing behind her ear. It's not that uncommon, but Jasmine had never tried this medication before, which is not something we normally advise, but she'd taken it on advice and it kicked in when she was at sea and she found herself having blurred vision so as duty officer on call she gave me a call said take the patches off and within 12 hours it's improving and we're within 24 hours back to normal but before she'd called me that must have been a very very scary moment for her on her own in a boat potentially losing her sight quite something ian couch is the head safety officer for atlantic campaigns which oversees this annual race he's rowed across oceans three times himself across the Atlantic twice and the Indian Ocean once. It is his job to prepare all the teams for the challenge. That includes teams of two, three, and four rowers, as well as the individual boats, like Jasmine and the seven other solos attempting the crossing this year. 
Over the years, Ian has trained more than 500 rowers for this, though he knows there's only so much he can do to prepare anyone for what they will experience during their crossing. It, it's such an, an odd and unusual event. Whatever training you do, you're always... You're never fully aware of what exactly is going to be like. We say that when you finally arrive in Antigua, you're ready to start your row. So routinely, it's not the big things that are a problem. It's the fact that you are sitting down rowing for 30, 40, 80 days. So you're going to get massively sore bum. People can get salt sores, repetitive strain injuries, and just the monotony uh, and the physical demand of rowing 12 to 18 hours a day in conditions that can vary from flat, calm and baking hot to to smashing waves. For me, it's everything a proper adventure challenge should be. It is physical, mental, technical, emotional. There is an element of luck because there's always a chance you'll fail. So it's, it's a pretty complete package, really. Take this last week, for example. While Jasmine and Argo were para-anchoring in place, a boat up toward the front of the fleet called Latitude 35 was having its own challenge. On the afternoon of January 6th, one of the four rowers used the boat's satellite phone to call the duty officer and report that somehow the hull of their stern cabin had been impaled by a plastic spike. It had kebobbed the boat from underneath, penetrating all the way up through the mattress of the bed where one of the crew was sleeping at the time. The duty officer quickly figured out that it wasn't a plastic spear. It was the beak of a marlin that must have mistaken the underbelly of their boat for a tuna it was hunting. That kind of stuff happens during the world's toughest row. In fact, it happened the next day to a different boat. It tests you in every possible way, and... That's that's where the challenge comes from. That's why it's so life-changing. That's why it is so incredibly exhilarating for people and, and makes it what it is. Right. It's not just the act of rowing. It's the experience of the cross. Rowing, the physical aspect of rowing is tough. But if that's 25% of the demand in terms of what makes it hard, that's probably it. It's all those other factors that combine together to make it make it so challenging. And that is exactly why Jasmine Harrison took the plunge in the first place. Not for the promise of kamikaze marlin strikes or the blistered hands or days of relentless in-your-face winds, but for the chance to see in what meaningful ways she might be changed after spending nearly 2% of her life crossing an ocean alone in a rowboat. When I spoke to Jasmine back in November, she told me the story of how she found out about the Atlantic Challenge in the first place. She was 18 when she went to the Caribbean in 2017, initially to teach swimming lessons on the island of Grenada. As you may recall, 2017 was a particularly devastating year in terms of hurricanes in the region. In September, Hurricane Irma obliterated the Leeward Islands, causing $4 billion in damage to St. Martin and St. Bart's, another $3 billion throughout the British Virgin Islands, another $2 billion to the U.S. Virgin Islands of St. Thomas, St. John, and St. Croix. 95% of the buildings on the island of Barbuda were destroyed, and every single resident was evacuated, leaving it uninhabited by humans for the first time in more than 300 years. A few weeks later, Hurricane Maria, a Category 5 killer storm, plowed through Dominica, St. Croix, and Puerto Rico, 
wrecking each island in profound and unrecoverable ways. Jasmine met someone who was planning to deliver disaster relief to Dominica on his boat, but that effort never materialized. Still, he wound up offering Jasmine and her friends the boat, letting them explore whatever islands they wanted in exchange for delivering it to an island to the north. One of her first stops was Antigua, English Harbor to be specific, where one night while she was having tea, she started talking with a woman who told her she was there to greet her nephew, an American named Oliver, who was due in a matter of days to arrive at Nelson's dockyard at the end of a solo ocean crossing, part of something she called the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. And I was like, that's amazing. She started telling me more about it. It's like, that sounds absolutely awesome. I want to go and see the team that's coming in tomorrow. Um, and so I did. I was up on the um, the fort area and team came in and then one of the support crew um, said, oh, do you want to hold this flare and welcome this team in? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, that's amazing. Um, and then I was chatting to some more of the support your crew at the bar over the next few days um, and I decided I'm going to do this one day, found out a bit more of the facts, spoke to people um, and yeah, it's taken a while, took a year of convincing myself that I actually did want to do it. And then it's taken um, a year and a half of prep to get here. That year and a half of prep stretched Jasmine in ways she'd never quite been tested before. She had to solicit sponsors for starters, which she managed to do quite nicely. There are 30 sponsors listed on her website, from an online pet supply company to a bunch of local businesses back home in Thirsk. It's their funding, for the most part, that made this entire journey possible. And it's their logos that decorate Argo's otherwise eggshell-white exterior, making it look like the wave-running cousin of some NASCAR stock car. Jasmine also had to identify charities to row for, which is a cornerstone of the Atlantic campaign's culture. Because her journey began with the prospect of being part of a disaster relief initiative, Jasmine is rowing for Shelterbox, an organization that supports families that have lost homes in communities ravaged by natural disasters. And she is rowing for the Blue Marine Foundation, an ocean conservancy NGO. She may be alone out there on the water, but Jasmine has built from scratch the kind of support team any individual adventurer would need. Her own band of Argonauts, as it were. Preparations also included rowing training, of course, and the small matter of finding, securing, and familiarizing herself with every square inch of a boat. It was in La Gomera, at the starting line of the 2019 race, when at first sight Jasmine fell in love with Argo. I went to the start line, um, and it was whilst I was there and I was seeing all the boats, I was effectively kind of boat shopping. So I spent quite a lot of the time talking to all the different solos, basically saying, can I stand on your boat? Can I look in your boat? Can I, can I sit in your cabin? Is that okay? Where are you keeping that? What's going on? Um, I'm sort of just looking at the different boats. And it sounds, so I went out rowing um, on one of them, um, White Rose Boat. And then it sounds really daft, but I went on to Argo um, and something just felt completely different. Um, I was like, no, this this is, I want this to be my boat. I sort of said, who's got this next year? And Dewey, the guy who said, nobody, I've not sold it yet. I was like, I would quite like this boat. What's not to like? Ocean rowboats are cool looking like the offspring of one of those shortest-notched Lincoln Logs pieces and a bullet. 
Argo did more than pass the eye test, though. It has everything Jasmine would require for her crossing. It has, for instance, two cabins, one in the bow, where she stores spare parts for pretty much everything on board, and the one in the stern that we talked about earlier, the red telephone box where she sleeps. In between, in that open notch, is the epicenter of Jasmine's small personal universe these days. I've got the deck area, which is central is where I row. So I have my seat there, I have footplates, um, oars on either side, and a row. Then also either side of me, because there is some space, I have hatches. Um, they're just deck hatches that are circular and um, clear lids. And in there, I keep all of my food. So that goes right from the top of the boat um, all the way down to the hull on the inside. Um, keep all the different ration packs in there. Um, I pretty much managed to fill up. So there's four of them. Um, two on either side, I pretty much filled up all of that. Then also in the central area, basically underneath me where I'm sat rowing, um, I have all the technical parts. So I have my water maker, I have my batteries, I have like the parts for the solar panel um, in two different hatches directly underneath me. Um, and then I have all the way um, in front of me, as I'm rowing, so at the back of the boat, because I face the opposite way to row because you row backwards. Um, so at the stern is my sleeping cabin. In my cabin, I have a all my like electronics, all my switchboards to be able. That's my radio, my AIS system, my GPS, um, cabin lights, navigation lights, uh, bilge pumps, all sorts. I have a little shelf where I can keep things as well. And then in the far back um, behind that, there's another, like a, a cupboard. And in there is where my steering is and where I'd fit my autopilot to be able to steer it automatically. And anybody who would have just listened to that would have noticed that you left out one thing that people probably ask you about more than anything. Okay. The restroom. Ah, uh, yeah. Um that's my buckets. Right. Um, literally, bucket, um, and then chuck it overboard. Or I can just jump straight into the sea. It's up to me. Then there's the food. Anyone who's ever packed for a road trip would agree that mapping out the menu for a long ride might be the trickiest part of the entire planning process. Of course, there's no road on Jasmine's road trip, which also means there aren't any roadside convenient marts along the way. Anything she would need to eat during the months-long crossing had to be accounted for in advance. Um, so the race rules state that I have to have 85 days' worth of supplies with me. Um, and there is a calculation based on how many calories you need. So it's 60 calories per kilogram of body weight per day. So for me, I based it on being 75 kilos times 60 mean I need like 4,500 calories a day. Um, and so I have three ration packs, but even then the maximum calories you're going to get in one of them is 800. And so you think that's only two and a half thousand. I still need another 2,000 calories. Like, okay, I need to get some breakfast, I need to have porridge, and then I need treats, so I need, well, 
you need good things to be able to actually fuel your body to continue. So I need a lot of protein. Um, so it's, I got sponsored by a built-on company. Um, so lots of protein with that. You need protein bars. Um, for me, I eat a lot of chocolate and sweets and stuff anyway. So you need the energy to just keep you going. Um, so there's quite a lot of chocolate. It all comes back to the chocolate. Then there's the protein shakes, which tend to be the only things many rowers can keep down during those rough first couple of days. That's when seasickness, Bigfoot's appetite, which, as you may recall, led to Jasmine suffering those harrowing side effects from her seasickness medication. And as that disquieting experience proved, there are going to be things that a rower just cannot prepare for. But not all of them are bad. I've just climbed out the water and there's my hole. The most exciting thing ever in my life. Wow. Oh my God. Look at that. Um, the most exciting is when she's phoned up and said, Guess what I've seen? And she's like, I've got three whales here. And uh, I've just been this dolphin this whole way. I need to jump in with them. That's Susan. Jasmine's mother, and her lifeline these days. Thanks to the wonders of satellite technology, Jasmine has been able to phone home most days and report back to her mother most of her amazing experiences, like being visited by whales or swimming with a pod of dolphin. Susan maintains Jasmine's social media feeds while she's away, which keeps everyone back home updated on her daughter's grand adventure. Serving as a sort of mission control for Jasmine's equivalent of a moonshot has helped alleviate some of Susan's inescapable worries. Some. Thankfully, you have all this communication with her and this ability to interact with her. But just knowing she's out there, I mean, my, my kids are in high school. And when they go out with their friends in the neighborhood, I'm wondering where they are, right? So what's it like to have your daughter by herself on a rowboat in the Atlantic? Is that stressful or have you kind of found common peace with that when i know that she's okay you kind of come back down to a level so literally i've just come off the phone to her now and i know exactly what's happening um okay this stuff she's just told me is pretty worrying but i know what where she is what she's doing um and how she's doing and how she's coping with it so that makes it a lot easier it's knowing how many checks and balances were put into place in order to ensure the safety um, before she even sets off is incredibly reassuring as well. Um, it's obviously an incredibly dangerous challenge. Um, it's I'm never going to rest easy on it. If I haven't heard from her, I'm thinking, I hope she's okay, and my mind will start going. Um, and then I'll hear from her, and of course she's fine. But you still have that absolute innate worry that what if, and she's on her own, and how would she do something? What if, indeed. Imagine being a parent wondering what if a squid washes up into my daughter's boat, which happened early on in the journey. It was a cute little guy, not much bigger than her hand. Or what if she encounters a shark? Yep, check that box too. What if the Argo winds up surfing a wave at 15.3 knots, which is 17.6 miles per hour, 
and the wave washes over the sides, filling the boat with so much water it brought the Argo to a full stop in its tracks. That was the pretty worrying stuff Susan just mentioned from her conversation with Jasmine on Monday. Jasmine, on the other hand, doesn't concern herself much with wondering and what-ifs. The one question that will consume her soon enough, though, if it hasn't already, is when? When will she pull up into Nelson's dockyard and be on the business end of the fanfare she witnessed in wave flares and celebration during, back when she'd only just learned of the challenge? If you check the show notes for this episode, you'll find a link to the race's website, where you can track the progress of every boat in the fleet. It's called dot watching. You can follow Jasmine's violet dot, currently at the back of the bunch, until she crosses the finish line, sometime at the end of February or beginning of March, based on the site's latest projection. The first boat, the lime green dot at the front of the fleet, could arrive as early as this Thursday. The pair of Dutchmen on row for cancer will be the first to experience the one-of-a-kind re-entry Ian Couch recalls from his own Antigua arrivals. It's an amazing feeling because you've been at sea for however many weeks and all you've seen is sky, sea, each other, the boat. You've seen some amazing things out there, but it's quite a limited exposure to your senses. And then you approach Antigua and as you get closer, you smell land, you see different colours and this feeling of excitement builds and builds. And then you turn the corner into... Nelson's Dockyard. So it's an amazingly beautiful historic place. And as you arrive, there's noise for the first time. The super yachts are letting the horns go. There are flares being fired. There are crowds cheering. It's a massively overwhelming experience because you've been working at a level of stress continually, just as background level all the way across. And you finally know that you're safe. And so you then you hit shore. And there'll be friends and family there waiting for you and noise. And you step off the boat and your legs don't work because you're not stood up for, for a month and a half. And everything smells different. And you, you'll be taken aside. You sit down and you have your, your, fresh, your first fresh food. Things like just standing are, are tiring. All the muscles that support you normally when you're walking have faded and, and changed. Your calf muscles have gone. But then you'll go somewhere and you run a tap. And just seeing fresh water coming out of a tap is incredible. It's like Tom Hanks returning to Memphis at the end of Castaway. And it'll be similar for Jasmine, too, who is traveling with her own volleyball companion named Wilson. Really. Experiences like this will change a person, which Jasmine acknowledged when we spoke days before her departure. And actually, that may be what she is most looking forward to. The fact that I'm going to be a different person when I reach the other side. So I'm having to say goodbye to me. That's quite like a, a big thing is I know that I'm going to be different, even if I don't want to be. That's sort of the whole purpose of we wanted to do this in the first place. It was a bit of a, a benchmark to it's going to be one of the toughest things you ever do. So that anything else in life might seem a bit more simple. Um, you know, you can compare it so that when I got, I got through an ocean row, why are you upset about this? That's, it's irrelevant. And I feel like that's quite a, an important thing. And so I'm going to think, I can do an ocean row. I can do this. As I mentioned earlier, be sure to check out our show notes for this episode so you can find out how and where to follow Jasmine on her crossing. See pictures and videos from her Facebook feed. 
And if you're suitably inspired by her story, make a donation to Shelterbox or the Blue Marine Foundation. Our show notes will also include links to our friends who support all out-of-left-field episodes, Electrocraft and its best-in-class Espressioni Concierge coffee maker, Everripe Superfood Smoothies, and Soggy Doggy, of which Jasmine's Springer Spaniel spokesmodel, Bonnie, would certainly approve. We will be keeping you updated on Jasmine's progress on our Twitter account. Be sure to follow us at OutOfLeftField7. And we are planning a follow-up conversation with Jasmine when she's got her toes in Antiguan sand, whenever that happens. So stay tuned for that. I want to thank Jasmine for allowing us to share her story, Ian Couch and Atlantic Campaigns for all their help, and Susan for her time. I also want to thank you for telling your friends about the kinds of stories we've been telling on this podcast and by leaving us a rating and a review wherever you listen. Wishing all of you, especially Jasmine, smooth sailing until we connect again soon.